Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Look, God wants to use you. Don't evaluate your life and your usefulness to the Lord based on how you perceive yourself. Because the honest truth is, the the way you perceive yourself is going to be based on the things that the world uses to make its judgments about you. And that will be very wrong. Remember these words. The Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the Heart, and that's what he's seeking. And so here in our in our, our account, um, they're from Nazareth. Nazareth is a backwater town. Mary and Joseph are really nobodies. They're living in an area most Jews didn't want to live in, and yet look how powerfully they are about to be used of the Lord and the child that will be born to them coming from that town. How he too will be used powerfully of the Lord. Fourth. Luke tells us that even though this couple, they're not married, they are betrothed to be married. They're betrothed to be married. Now, unlike marriages today, Jewish marriage was a process with a number of distinct phases and and really rituals involved in it. And betrothal was simply the first phase where the offer of marriage was made. I want to, if we have time today, I'm going to come back to this a little bit because there's some really neat connections to the entire uh, process that the Jews went through for marriage. And if not time today, then I'll come back to it in our next time together. But, But just keep that in mind. Our idea of betrothal and marriage are very different than for the Jews. And so they're betrothed at this point. The commitment's been made, but the marriage hasn't taken place yet. Fifth, Luke tells us that Joseph is of the house of David. He's of the house of David. In other words, Joseph is in the royal lineage of King David to whom God promised the king greater than David would one day descend. Now we're going to return again to this as well to a more detailed discussion when we get to chapter 3 which deals with the genealogy of Jesus because establishing Jesus' lineage to the house of David is an important topic and I'm going to show you why he meets a priestly requirement and he meets the kingly requirement both. But for now, just note David's connection. Sixth, Luke tells us that Mary was a virgin. Mary was a virgin. Now, there are a lot of liberal scholars out there, biblical critics, who who try to bring this aspect into question. But I'm just going to tell you straight up that the biblical language itself that's used here, the original language that's used here, does not lend itself to the idea that it means anything other than she was a virgin as we would interpret that. The Greek word used here is, is not in the least bit ambiguous as it specifically means virgin. Virgin. There is no other alternate alternate translation possible. Now, Isaiah 7, 4, which is another favorite one to pick on when it talks about uh, that, that she'll be with, the virgin shall be with child. You know this, we read it at Christmas time. That passage, critics will say, well, that word used there could simply mean a chaste woman. It could mean this kind of woman, but it doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. 
fine, they can argue that one, but when you connect Isaiah 7-4 to this one, which is a completely different use here, this one specifically is talking about virgin, and so therefore you can look at Isaiah 7-4 and realize that it really is talking about a virgin. It's still talking about a virgin in the same sense, and, and both Matthew and Luke are going to clearly assert that Jesus had no human father and that he was the ultimate fulfillment of that passage in Isaiah and also of Genesis 3-15. And so there is no doubt whatsoever that Mary is a literal virgin when this event takes place, and there is no reason for us to believe otherwise. I just want to tell you guys, it just never ceases to amaze me how fallen human beings are are continually doing everything that they can to bring God's word into question. But but it's, it's nothing new. You know, when you think about it, it's nothing new. It's just a continuation of what began in the garden with the same voice whispering in their ears as, as that voice whispered into Adam and Eve's ears, you know, specifically into Eve's. But that same voice whispering into their ears as they're now trying to whisper it into your ears, has God really said? Has God really said? Is that what he really means? Look, if Satan can get you to bite into the fruit associated with that question, he has you. If he can get you to bite into the fruit associated with that question, has God really said, is that what he really means? He has you. He has you. It doesn't even matter how big a bite you take. It doesn't matter. The simple act of bringing into question God's truthfulness is enough to undermine everything else that he has said to you in his word. Don't be taken in by this trap. Don't be taken in by it. God's word has been, is, and always will be 100% true. What God says is what God has said. That's the answer to that. What God says is what God has said. Psalm 119 verse 160 says this so well. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Can I read that to you again? The entirety of your word is truth. Jesus said when they challenged him as to whether he came to abolish the law, he said, not one jot, not one tittle. I simply came to fulfill it. The entirety of the word, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. And he says, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. You see, not one aspect of God's word is untrue, unimportant, or inaccurate. It it, it is true, it is important, and it is 100% accurate. As Matthew 5.18, again, as Jesus said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And it's why it will even exist eternally when everything else has faded and passed away in this world as we know it. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 25 and I'm sorry, Matthew 24 and verse 35, Jesus said, Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So don't get fooled. Don't be taken in by those who would whisper in your ear, has God really said? Is that what he really meant? Yeah, he has really said. He has really said, and he has written it all down, and he's preserved it for us so that we would know what it is that he has said. The question is not whether he said it. The question is whether or not we want to hear what he has said, whether we want to receive what it is that he said. That's the real question. And I believe that that's really the issue at the heart behind those who seek to undermine the word of God. Now, look, 
I'm not telling you that you should not approach the Word of God with an inquisitive mind. It is not wrong to say, how can this be? We're going to see Mary say that. How can this be? It's okay to do that. And I believe very firmly that if you approach the Word of God with an open heart, researching it for yourself, remember, even Luke is writing this account for this man, Theophilus, putting an orderly account so that he will know. Look, when you approach it with an open heart, as Theophilus is, as Luke is taking this on, you know, when you approach it with that with your questions, Scripture will answer Scripture. Yes, there's faith involved, but I promise you this. Scripture will answer enough of your questions that faith will simply be a byproduct of it all. You, you'll have no, no other where to go. You'll want to believe. It, it's, it's going, the, the Word of God proves itself to you. I know that when I came to faith in Christ, one of the first things I said to him as I confessed the fact that I was a sinner, I recognized that and, and that I believed that you know, what he did for me on the cross was true and, and that I would put my faith in him. But my next statement I made to him is, but you need to show me the truth of it all. You need to reveal to me the truth of it all. Show it to me. And you know where he turned me? He turned me to his word. He didn't turn me to a whole bunch of preachers. Nothing wrong with preachers. Didn't turn me to a bunch of books. Nothing wrong with books. But he got my heart focused on the word of God. And I began to study the word of God. I began to read it with an open heart. And the more I read it, the more it proved itself to me. The truthfulness of it all. The application of it to my life has more than proven it as well. And he will prove it to you in the same way. But that's very different than approaching it with the sarcasm by which our society today approaches it. Simply saying, you know, maybe that's not what God meant. Maybe it's just misinterpreted. Maybe we're just taking that wrong. Maybe, no. Has God really said? Yes, he has. And he's written it down. He's preserved it just for you and for me. And we can take our stand on it. We can trust in it. Amen? Well, let's look on at verse 28. It goes on in verse 28 and says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Now, Luke tells us that this initial encounter with Mary that Gabriel has with her, he says three things to her that are certainly true for Mary. Number one, he tells her that she is highly favored by God. Number two, he tells her that the Lord is with her. And number three, he tells her, that she, has, she is an especially blessed woman. There should be no doubt in any of our minds that these statements reflect the unique privilege that Mary enjoyed with God. A greater privilege that, than any woman has ever enjoyed with God because of the privilege he gave her to carry the Messiah into this world. And yet without taking away from this, and let me say very clearly, without Taking away from this, we must also be very, very careful not to ascribe more to Mary than is biblically correct for us to ascribe to her. First, even though these statements clearly pertain to Mary, they are also reflective in many ways of the relationship that we as believers enjoy with God. I mean, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 makes clear that we too are all highly favored by God if we're in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, actually verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians 1. He says in verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That phrase made us accept in the beloved means that we're highly favored through Christ. We're highly favored to God through Christ. So we share that in common with Mary. Matthew 28 and verse 20 clearly tells us that the Lord is with us as believers. 
Matthew 28 and verse 20. I, actually, I'm going to back up a verse in verse 19 and 20. Uh, Matthew 28 verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you. Oh, wait, we just heard those words used in regard to Mary. I am with you, God says, always, even to the end of the age. He never departs us. He never leaves us. In fact, we'll talk about it in a moment. He's given us the assurance of his spirit in our lives as a guarantee, as a promise, as his presence with us, always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, in fact, we're told that God isn't only with us, but that he dwells through us through the Holy Spirit, as I just said. You know, what was Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 3.16? 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I don't know any better way of having God with us than to have God dwelling in us. Praise the Lord. So we share that in common with Mary. The Lord is with us as well. And finally, number three, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, also tells us that we are blessed. That we are blessed. Ephesians 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So you see, we share this, this blessing with Mary as well. Now, she's blessed because of the child, because of Jesus that she's going to carry and birth into the world. We're blessed because of the child that was born into this world, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. But we're blessed, equally blessed. Second, note this. Even though Mary enjoyed a special blessing and privilege from God, nowhere in Scripture do we find that she was different than any other fallen human being that was ever born into this world. She was not divine. She is not even semi-divine in anywhere. Nowhere in the Bible is there any support for her being such thing. I realize that some circles of Christianity, these things have been attributed to her, seeing her in a near divine status and, and, and worshiping her along with Jesus, in some cases nearly as what some would term a co-redemptress along with Jesus. But, but I'm just telling you with all honesty, this is not supported by the Bible itself. It is simply the perspective of men who have created incorrect traditions around her. And remember what the Apostle Paul had to say about the traditions of men. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this, Colossians 2, beginning in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality, and power. Paul says that these traditions of men are empty, that they're deceitful, that they cheat us of things spiritually as they draw our attention away from where our attention really needs to be, on the one in whom we are made complete in every regard. It takes us away from Jesus Christ, and in doing that, it robs us. It not only robs him of the glory he alone deserves, but it robs us of the spiritual blessings that come from worshiping him alone. 
Paul points out in that passage that we're complete in him. There's nothing else needed to make us complete. No man, no woman ever born into this world that makes us complete. It's only Jesus. He is the head of everything. He's the head of it all. And it's in him, not in him and her, but in him in which the fullness of the God of God of the Godhead dwells bodily bodily. And he's the one that we're to worship, you see. And so be careful with this. I mean, no insult to those from these different circles, but I am challenging to say, what does the Bible say? Not what do men say? Not what do men teach? What does the Bible say? And the Bible clearly says that Mary, as blessed and full of grace as she was because of what was taking place with her, was never in a position different than any other human being, maybe more especially blessed because of carrying the Messiah, but not in a position different than any other human being. We're all fallen as we're born into this world. And through Christ, that fallenness is dealt with. She needed Jesus as much as we all did. Third, and similarly, even though Mary truly enjoyed a, bl- a special blessing of God's grace upon her life, it also did not elevate her to a place above any other believer whereby she could impart grace on behalf of Christ. Those who wrongly believe that Mary holds that special position higher than any other human being believe that she is in that position to issue grace on behalf of God. But that's simply not biblically true, once again. Even though the language used in this verse quite literally can be translated as Hail Mary, full of grace, that's what the angel would be saying to her. It is not speaking of an empowerment of grace given to Mary, which gives her special position and ability to divinely grant grace to others, but it's simply that she received special favor and special grace from God for the role that she would play in the birth of the Messiah. And in the end, it is no greater or more special grace than any other believer now receives from God in regard to our salvation and the role that God has for us as believers in Christ. So Mary was especially favored and especially blessed, and she enjoyed a special relationship with God's presence in her life. Absolutely. I'm not taking away from that by any means. Remember, she of all women is the one who's privileged to give birth to the Savior of the world. And yet we must always remember she was still just an ordinary woman, a fallen human being like all of us, whom God chose to richly bless and use. And although none of us will ever be given that same privilege that Mary was given, we can find ourselves richly blessed and used of God as well. And in fact, all of us as believers do get the unique privilege of carrying the Messiah to the world around us and making him known so that others can enjoy his grace and be blessed as well. So let's not take anything away from the special place that Mary holds in the Bible. Yet at the same time, let's not make the mistake that many have made by elevating her to things that the Bible simply does not elevate her to. Let's not follow the traditions of men that that cheat us out of the joy that's found as we focus on and, and worship the one the Bible tells us we're to worship alone, Jesus Christ. Let's keep our focus on him. Amen? Well, look at verse 29. Verse 29 goes on, it says, But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. So Mary, she's both surprised by Gabriel's sudden appearance and she's troubled by the message that he's bringing to her. It was troubling to her in that it it mixed with fear of encountering an angelic being. 
She didn't quite yet understand what his message had to do with her and why she was being singled out by God like this. Some suggest that it reveals Mary's humility, which I don't disagree that she was a humble woman. But I simply think it's the natural reaction of a woman who is having a supernatural encounter like this, especially after nothing like this has been happening for nearly 400 years. Just imagine if if suddenly an angel appeared in your living room and it was clear that it was an angel and he starts delivering a message to you from God. I'd argue it would blow you away and it would probably cause a little bit of unsettledness in you. The supernatural is hard to fathom to begin with, but especially when it's happening to you. And that's what's taking place here for Mary. We'll look at verse 30. It says, Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke now records the message that Gabriel gives to Mary. Number one, after calming her fears, we saw him do that as well with with, uh, Zacharias. And as we've talked about before, you know, one of the things you know when an angel comes from the Lord, nine times out of ten, unless he's there in some kind of a judgment role, which he's not coming to you as a believer in, but when he comes to a believer, he always utters those words, don't fear, have nothing to fear. Jesus says that too, oftentimes, "Don't, don't fear, no need to fear. I'm here, I've got this, God is in control. But after calming her fears, don't be afraid, Mary. I'm here because God favors you. He goes on to tell her that she will supernaturally conceive a child who she is to name Jesus. Jesus is the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. Both are a compound of the Hebrew word that would be spelled out Y-H-W-H in our alphabet. We would say it as Yahweh, and, and, or it can mean salvation. Salvation is literally what it means. So literally translated, it would mean Yahweh saves, or Jehovah is salvation. That's what Jesus' name means. Second, he also tells her that this child will be great. Jesus' first coming never rose to greatness as the world considers great. He was spit upon. He was mocked. And and in reality, he was really followed by very few people. The the crowds would throng at times. Most of the time, they'd kind of ebb away when the miracles stopped or when he said something they didn't like. Not too untypical of churches in America today in some cases. But, you know, just ebbing away, he just wasn't followed by a huge crew. He was spit upon. He was beaten. You know, in his first coming, he fulfilled the role that Isaiah prophesied that he would fulfill. Here's what Isaiah writes. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of what this angel is telling Mary when he says, this child will be great. Think about this. If this is our measure of greatness. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with their transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There is no more lowly role that we, from a worldly perspective, could see than what's being described here. Beaten, an outcast, not desired by people, carrying the sins, the ugliness of sins upon him. And this makes him great. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.